Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover the history of the rhinoplasty, or nose repair, starting with the word's origins, and then following the development of the different techniques throughout history. Along the way, we'll talk about some of the causes of nasal injuries that made this procedure necessary, and even meet a doctor from the 16th century who is considered by some to be the father of plastic surgery. All this and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So let's start by talking about the word rhinoplasty. The term was first used in 1828, and like many medical words, has its root in Greek. Rhino is the Greek word for nose, makes sense, and plastos is Greek for the act or process of forming or molding. This explains the origin of the word plastic surgery and the material plastic. Another word that shares the first root word is rhinoceros. This is rhino for nose and keras, which means horn, so nose horn, pretty descriptive. We also get the word for the protein called keratin from this root word, which is actually the material that rhino horn is made of, not bone. And keratin is also what makes up our hair and fingernails. So before we get into it, let me clarify that the focus here will be on the reconstruction of damaged noses rather than the aesthetic plastic surgery of improving the appearance of the nose, which is a much more recent phenomenon. The earliest mention of repairing noses comes from the Edwin Smith Papyrus. This is an ancient Egyptian medical text and the oldest known surgical treaty dating back to the Old Kingdom, sometime between 3000 to 2500 BCE or before Common Era. An American Egyptologist named Edwin Smith bought it in Luxor, Egypt in 1862 from a dealer named Mustafa Aga. He actually held onto it until his death, upon which his daughter donated it to the New York Historical Society. It wasn't until then that it was translated and published in 1930 that people understood its importance. Now, The Edwin Smith Papyrus consists of 48 cases which are used to instruct students. The materials are organized anatomically, starting with the head and progressing down the body. The cases are also arranged with increasing order of severity. The description of treating nasal injuries was pretty basic, manipulating the nose into position, followed by lint, swabs, and plugs of linen as absorbents. Splints of thin wood padded with linen, grease, and honey could also be applied. The first true rhinoplasties were done in ancient India. Noses were often cut off by bandits as a mark of humiliation. Husbands would cut off their wives' noses if they left the house without permission. Adulterers, thieves, and other criminals would be punished this way. So during the 6th century BCE, a physician named Sushruta described a method of transferring skin from the forehead or cheek to the nasal defect, which he described in his encyclopedia called the Samhita, one of the most important surviving ancient treaties on medicine. Here's a quote. When a man's nose has been cut off or destroyed, the physician takes the leaf of a plan. He places it on the patient's cheek and cuts out of this cheek a piece of skin of the same size in such a manner that the skin at one end remains attached to the cheek. Then he freshens with his scalpel the edges of the stump of the nose and wraps the piece of skin from the cheek carefully around it and sews it at all the edges. As soon as the skin has sewn together with the nose, he cuts through the connection with the cheek. End quote. This is what has become known as the Indian method. Although the Indian method persisted in India, it did not spread beyond its borders, at least not very quickly. However, there is some record of nasal reconstruction in the Roman Empire. Aulus Cornelius Celsus, who lived between 25 BCE and 50 CE, wrote Da Medicina, a classic medical text. In it, he describes techniques to repair mutilated lips, ears, and noses. And there's evidence that the 
Byzantine Emperor Justinian II had a nasal flap reconstruction in the 8th century. In fact, he was known as Rhinometis, the one with the amputated nose. The story is that he was overthrown and his nose mutilated so that his disfigured appearance would prohibit him from regaining the throne. However, Justinian returned to power after nasal reconstruction, and apparently on the ancient marble Carmagnola statue of him, there is a forehead scar and reconstructed nose. That's pretty cool. Following the fall of Rome, most of Europe entered the Dark Ages, where reconstructive surgery stopped advancing. In fact, Pope Innocent III specifically prohibited surgical procedures. The European Renaissance brought the rebirth of science, medicine, and surgery, which was fortunate as there was an epidemic of syphilis that gave new attention to the need for reconstructive nasal surgery. Well, how so? Well, let me explain. First, what is syphilis? For those that don't know, it is a sexually transmitted disease caused by a bacteria called Treponema pallidum, which is a spirochete, so-called, because the organism is actually spiral or coil-shaped. I'll post a picture on Twitter. The name syphilis was coined by the Italian physician and poet Girolamo Fracastoro in 1530. He wrote a poem about a shepherd named Syphilis. In the story, Syphilis becomes the first person to contract the disease as a punishment by the god Apollo for defying him. Syphilis was mad at Apollo for consuming the springs that watered his flock and parched the trees that fed them, and so he vowed not to worship Apollo anymore. I guess it's not a good idea to anger the gods. Anyways, there are two main theories on the sudden appearance of syphilis in Europe in the late 1400s. These center around the discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus. One, called the pre-Columbian hypothesis, is that syphilis was around in the Old and New Worlds for a long time, and initially was a mild disease, possibly even being mistaken for cases of leprosy, but then mutating and becoming the severe illness that caused the epidemic in Europe at the end of the 15th century. Basically, the timing with Europe's discovery of the New World was coincidental with this hypothesis. The Columbian hypothesis, which seems to be the more favored one, is that the fleet brought syphilis back with them on their return from the New World in 1493. There's plenty of evidence that syphilis was around in North America, both from archaeological findings and from the fact that the native population had elaborate treatments for it. Yet the doctors on the voyage described it as, quote, an unknown disease so far not seen and never described, end quote. However, it may also be that when syphilis arrived in Europe, it found a whole different environment and population that had no exposure previously and became far more virulent, leading to the outbreaks that plagued, pun intended, Europe for centuries. The first big one was in 1495 among French troops besieged in Naples, Italy, possibly brought to them by Spanish mercenaries. By some estimates, as many as 5 million people died from syphilis before it mutated further into the less lethal version we know today, or Europeans developed enough collective immunity to it. Because of the rash that is associated with the disease, it was sometimes called the great pox, to differentiate it from smallpox. Pox, by the way, means an illness that creates a pimple-like rash that becomes filled with pus, so-called pustules, and leave pock marks on the skin when they heal. However, given that it's a venereal disease and thought to be a marker of poor moral character, different countries called it by different names. The English, Italians, and Germans called it the French pox, the French called it the Italian disease, the Russians, the Polish sickness, the Poles, the German sickness, the Dutch, Flemish, and Portuguese, the Spanish sickness, and so on. You get the idea. And side note, do you know why sexually transmitted diseases are sometimes called venereal disease? It comes from the Latin venereus, meaning of Venus, which some of you may know was the Greek goddess of love. There's even a saying about syphilis that goes, one night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. In this case, it's a play on words, as Mercury here doesn't mean the planet or the Greek god, 
but rather the chemical element as it was used as a treatment. A number of plants from the New World were thought to be useful in treating syphilis, but the mainstay in Europe for centuries was mercury. This was administered in a variety of ways, from pills to suppositories, inhalations, fumigations, ointments, sachets, which is a small cloth-scented bag, to injections. Of course, this led to mercury poisonings and even death. By the middle of the 19th century, arsenic came into favor, which was not a huge improvement, but was used up until the 1940s when it was replaced by the discovery of penicillin. So why are we talking about syphilis in a podcast on rhinoplasty? Well, one of the long-term effects of syphilis infection is the destruction of the tissues of the nose, causing it to collapse into what is known as a saddle deformity. And I'll put a picture up on Twitter. Other complications include skin ulcers, paralysis, blindness, and dementia. But saddle nose was an obvious marker of infection, stigmatizing the infected. People used artificial noses, but I'd imagine those didn't stand up to scrutiny, and so a better method was needed. In Sicily, in the first half of the 15th century, the Branca family developed what is now called the Italian method of rhinoplasty. Interestingly, they may have gained knowledge of rhinoplasties from the Islamic groups that invaded and occupied Sicily from the 9th to the 12th centuries, who would have learned it from their earlier conquest of India. Anyways, the Branca family kept their, their methods a secret, handed down through the family, beginning with the first surgeon in the family, Gustavo Branca, to his son Antonio. In fact, they prevented people from even observing the procedure, lest they steal it. Now, in the second half of the 15th century, the Veneo family of Calabria, Italy, became famous for their nose reconstruction. But again, the methods were kept secret. And this lasted for almost 200 years until a surgeon came along that introduced the world to the Italian method. Enter Gasperi Tagliacozzi, considered by some the father of plastic surgery. Let's meet him. Born in Bologna, Italy in 1545, Tagliacozzi studied medicine at the town's university. Adding to the work done by those earlier Italian surgeons, he described the Italian method in his 1597 seminal work on the surgery of mutilation by grafting. This book was considered the first to be exclusively devoted to plastic surgery. So their method is described as such. It was done by partially cutting a flap of skin on the upper arm called a pedicle, which was then attached to the nose. The patient's arm was then bandaged and immobilized in the raised position for about 20 days or until the skin of the arm had attached itself to the nose by growing new blood vessels and connections. At that point, the pedicle would be cut from the arm and after 14 days, the attached skin would be shaped so that it resembled the nose. You can imagine having your arm stuck in position for three weeks. I'll put up a picture on Twitter. As I mentioned, Tagliacozzi is considered by some as the father of plastic surgery and there's a quote attributed to him that has become synonymous with plastic surgery. So here it is, quote, We restore, rebuild, and make whole those parts which nature hath given, but which fortune hath taken away, not so much that it may delight the eye, but that it might buoy up the spirit and help the mind of the afflicted, end quote. So the church considered Tagliacozzi to be in league with the devil because he was interfering with the affairs of the Almighty. After his death, some nuns claimed that they heard a voice stating that he was damned, so they exhumed his body and had it moved to unconsecrated grounds as revenge for his sacrilegious efforts. Fortunately, not everyone felt this way, and his colleagues had a statue of him made with him holding a nose in his hand. Following his death, plastic surgery, and really all surgery, declined in Europe for several hundred years. A fortuitous twist of history actually led to the rediscovery of the ancient method of rhinoplasty, which is a great story, so let me describe the events to you. In October of 1794, a letter appeared in a British journal called Gentleman's Magazine that described the Indian method of rhinoplasty. This letter was by a Mr. Lucas, 
describing an operative procedure for reconstructing the amputated nose of an Indian bullock driver working with the British Army named Kawasji. He and four other native soldiers were captured by a marauding party of Tipo Sultan, and their hands and noses were cut off, after which they were returned to the English. After some time, the English heard about a surgeon in Pune, which was 400 miles away, that could give them new noses, so they sent for the surgeon, who repaired the men. In the story, this unnamed surgeon claimed to be the only one in India who could do this operation, which was an art handed down in their family. A young surgeon working at the York Hospital in Chelsea, England, named Joseph Constantine Carpu, read the article. He then practiced the technique on cadavers for 20 years until he found the right patients. In 1814, Dr. Carpu performed the technique on two patients. One was a British military officer who lost his nose to mercury treatments, an unfortunate side effect, and the other was an officer whose nose was mutilated by a sword. He published his results in an illustrated monograph entitled An Account of Two Successful Operations for Restoring a Lost Nose from the Integuments of the Forehead, thought to be the first original treaty on plastic surgery written in English. A number of European surgeons continued to modify and improve the technique, but it wasn't until the latter half of the 19th century, with the advent of anesthesia and antiseptic technique, that the modern era of nasal reconstructive techniques began. The basic tenets were, one, establish the nasal framework, two, fashion a proper lining, and three, apply a viable skin cover. There are just a few more contributors to the development of rhinoplasty that we should touch on before wrapping up. The first is John Rowe, an American otorhinolaryngologist, which is the fancy name for an ENT doctor, who was the first to develop an aesthetic approach to rhinoplasty, meaning a cosmetic nose job. In 1891, he introduced the endonasal or closed approach to rhinoplasty. This means all of the incisions are inside the nose, hiding the scars. Next is the surgeon considered the father of modern rhinoplasty, Dr. Jacques Joseph. He was German and an orthopedic surgeon by training, but presented his first account of reduction rhinoplasty in 1898 in an article called Operative Reduction of the Size of a Nose, Rhinomyosis. It has been written that his practice was influenced by anti-Semitic feelings at the time, with the idea that physicians thought they should alter racial characteristics such as the so-called Jewish nose, characterized by the anthropologist Robert Knox in the 1850s, as a means of promoting patient well-being. But regardless, many of the techniques that he introduced are still in use today. And in 1931, he published his seminal work, in which he explained and developed practically the whole field of rhinoplasty surgery with diagnosis and classification of various deformities and developed surgical techniques to correct deformities and the tools and instruments to use. Now, repair of nasal and facial injuries wouldn't be complete without considering the world wars. Sir Harold Gillies is probably the most prominent surgeon in treating these wounds and is considered the father of modern plastic surgery. His story is so rich and interesting that I'll save it for another day. I'll finish with a story of a modern-day rhinoplasty that is both disturbing and inspiring. A young Afghan woman named Aisha Mohammedzeh was found in the mountains of Afghanistan by aid workers and the U.S. Army, with her nose and ears cut off having been left to die. This was punishment for attempting to escape the compound she lived on with her abusive Taliban husband, whom she was forced to marry at the age of 14. And this was arranged by her father as compensation for a killing that a member of her family had committed. She appeared on the cover of Time magazine, which was quite controversial, and I'll post that on Twitter. Now, following this, Aisha was flown to the U.S. to have multi-stage facial reconstruction, eventually totaling 12 surgeries. She has been adopted by an Afghan-American couple in Maryland and is now studying to become a police officer. 
So we've come all the way from ancient Egypt and India to Renaissance Europe to the modern age, where we've seen an example of this procedure in its current form help a young woman to be restored to her normal appearance. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time we'll cover one of the giants of surgery and someone considered the father of neurosurgery, Dr. Harvey Cushing. Did you know that he was a Pulitzer Prize winning author? Find out more next time. But for now, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.